This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton Section 1 The Suffragist Rightly or wrongly, it is certain that a man both liberal and chivalric can and very often does feel a disease and distrust touching those political women we call suffragettes. Like most other popular sentiments, it's generally wrongly stated even when it is rightly felt. One part of it can be put most shortly thus, that when a woman puts up her fists to a man, she is putting herself in the only posture in which he is not afraid of her. He can be afraid of her speech, and still more of her silence, but force reminds him of a rusted but very real weapon of which he has grown ashamed. But these crude summaries are never quite accurate in any matter of the instincts. For the things which are the simplest, so long as they are undisputed, invariably become the subtlest when once they are disputed, which was what Jobert meant, I suppose, when he said, It is not hard to believe in God if one does not define him. When the evil instincts of old Foulon made him say of the poor, Let them eat grass, the good and Christian instincts of the poor made them hang him on a lamp-post with his mouth stuffed full of that vegetation. But if a modern vegetarian aristocrat were to say to the poor, But why don't you like grass? Their intelligences would be much more taxed to find an appropriate repartee. And this matter of the functions of the sexes is primarily a matter of the instincts. Sex and breathing are about the only two things that generally work best when they are least worried about. That, I suppose, is why the same sophisticated age that has poisoned the world with feminism is also polluting it with breathing exercises. We plunge at once into a forest of false analogies and bad blundering history, while almost any man or woman left to themselves would know at least that sex is quite different from anything else in the world. There is no kind of comparison possible between a quarrel of a man and a woman, however right the woman may be, and the other quarrels of a slave and master, of rich and poor, or of the patriot and invader, with which the suffragists deluge us every day. The difference is as plain as noon. These other alien groups never came into contact until they came into collision. Races and ranks began with battle even if they afterwards melted into amity. But the very first fact about the sexes is that they like each other. They seek each other, and awful as are the sins and sorrows that often come of the mating, it was not such things that made them meet. It is utterly astounding to note the way in which modern writers and talkers miss this plain, wide, and overwhelming fact one would suppose woman a victim and nothing else. By this account, ideal, emancipated woman 
has, age after age, been knocked silly with a stone axe. But really there is no fact to show that ideal emancipated woman was ever knocked silly, except the fact that she is silly. And that might have arisen in so many other ways. Real responsible woman has never been silly, and anyone wishing to knock her would be wise, like the street boys, to knock and run away. It is ultimately idiotic to compare this prehistoric participation with any royalties or rebellions. Genuine royalties wish to crush rebellions. Genuine rebels wish to destroy kings. The sexes cannot wish to abolish each other. And if we allow them any sort of permanent opposition, it will sink into something as base as a party system. As marriage, therefore, is rooted in an aboriginal unity of instincts, you cannot compare it, even in its quarrels, with any of the mere collisions of separate institutions. You could compare it with the emancipation of Negroes from planters, if it were true that a white man in early youth always dreamed of the abstract beauty of a black man. You could compare it with the revolt of tenants against a landlord, if it were true that young landlords wrote sonnets to invisible tenants. You could compare it to the fighting policy of the Fenians, if it were true that every normal Irishman wanted an Englishman to come and live with him. But as we know, there are no instincts in any of these directions. These analogies are not only false, but false on the cardinal fact. I do not speak of the comparative comfort of merit of these different things. I say they are different. It may be that love turned to hate is terribly common in sexual matters. It may be that hate turned to love is not uncommon in the rivalries of race or class. But any philosophy about the sexes that begins with anything but the mutual attraction of the sexes begins with a fallacy, and all its historical comparisons are as irrelevant and impertinent as puns. But to expose such cold negation of the instincts is easy. To express or even half express the instincts is very hard. The instincts are very much concerned with what literary people call style in letters, or more vulgar people call style in dress. They are much concerned with how a thing is done, as well as whether one may do it, and the deepest elements in their attraction or aversion can often only be conveyed by stray examples or sudden images. When Danton was defending himself before the Jacobin tribunal, he spoke so loudly that his voice was heard across the Seine, in quite remote streets on the other side of the river. He must have bellowed like a bull of Bashan. Yet none of us would think of that prodigy except as something poetical and appropriate. None of us would instinctively feel that Danton was less of a man, or even less of a gentleman, for speaking so in such an hour. But suppose we heard that Marie Antoinette, when tried before the same tribunal, had howled so that she could be heard in the Faubourg St. Germain. Well, I leave it to the instincts, if there are any left. It is not wrong to howl, neither is it right. It is simply a question of the instant impression on the artistic and even animal parts of humanity if the noise were heard suddenly like a gun.
Perhaps the nearest verbal analysis of the instinct may be found in the gestures of the orator addressing a crowd. For the true orator must always be a demagogue, even if the mob be a small mob, like the French Committee or the English House of Lords. And demagogue, in the good Greek meaning, does not mean one who pleases the populace, but one who leads it. And if you will notice, you will see that all the instinctive gestures of oratory are gestures of military leadership, pointing the people to a path or waving them on to an advance. Notice that long sweep of the arm across the body and outward, which great orators use naturally and cheap orators artificially. It is almost the exact gesture of the drawing of a sword. The point is not that women are unworthy of votes. It is not even that votes are unworthy of women. It is that votes are unworthy of men, so long as they are merely votes and have nothing in them of this ancient militarism of democracy. The only crowd worth talking to is the crowd that is ready to go somewhere and do something. The only demagogue worth hearing is he who can point at something to be done, and, if he points with a sword, will only feel it familiar and useful like an elongated finger. Now, except in some mystical exceptions, which prove the rule, these are not the gestures, and therefore not the instincts of women. No honest man dislikes the public woman. He can only dislike the political woman, an entirely different thing. The instinct has nothing to do with any desire to keep women curtained or captive, if such a desire exists. A husband would be pleased if his wife wore a gold crown and proclaimed laws from a throne of marble, or if she uttered oracles from the tripod of the priestess, or if she could walk in a mystical motherhood before the procession of some great religious order. But that she should stand on a platform in the exact altitude in which he stands, leaning forward a little more than is graceful, and holding her mouth open a little longer and wider than is dignified, well... I only write here of the facts of natural history, and the fact is that it is this, and not publicity or importance, that hurts. It is for the modern world to judge whether such instincts are indeed danger signals, and whether the hurting of moral as of material nerves is a toxin and a warning of nature. THE POET AND THE CHEESE there is something creepy in the flat eastern counties, a brush of the white feather. There is a stillness which is rather of the mind than of the bodily senses. Rapid changes and sudden revelations of scenery, even when they are soundless, have something in them analogous to a movement of music, to a crash or a cry. Mountain hamlets spring out on us with a shout like mountain brigands, Comfortable valleys accept us with open arms and warm words, like comfortable innkeepers. But traveling in the great level lands has a curiously still and lonely quality, lonely even when there are plenty of people on the road and in the marketplace. One's voice seems to break an almost elvish silence, and something unreasonably weird in the phrase of the nursery tales and he went a little further and came to another place, comes back into the mind. 
In some such mood I came along a lean, pale road south of the Fens, and found myself in a large, quiet, and seemingly forgotten village. It was one of those places that instantly produce a frame of mind which, it may be, one afterward decks out with unreal details. I dare say that grass did not really grow in the streets, but I came away with the curious impression that it did. I dare say that the marketplace was not literally lonely and without sign of life, but it left the vague impression of being so. The place was large and even loose in design, yet it had the air of something hidden away and always overlooked. It seemed shy, like a big yokel. The low roof seemed to be ducking behind the hedges and railings, and the chimneys holding their breaths. I came into it in that dead hour of the afternoon, which is neither after lunch nor before tea, nor anything else, even on a half-holiday, and I had a fantastic feeling that I had strayed into a lost and extra hour that is not numbered in the twenty-four. I entered an inn, which stood openly in the marketplace, yet was almost as private as a private house. Those who talk of public houses, as if they were all one problem, would have been both puzzled and pleased with such a place. In the front window, a stout old lady in black, with an elaborate cap, sat doing a large piece of needlework. She had a kind of comfortable puritanism about her, and might have been, perhaps she was, the original Mrs. Grundy. A little more withdrawn into the parlour sat a tall, strong, and serious girl, with a face of beautiful honesty, and a pair of scissors stuck in her belt, doing a small piece of needlework. Two feet behind them sat a hulking labourer with a humorous face like wood painted scarlet, with a huge mug of mild beer which he had not touched, and probably would not touch for hours. On the hearthrug there was an equally motionless cat, and on the table a copy of Household Words. I was conscious of some atmosphere, still and yet racing, that I had met somewhere in literature. There was a poetry in it as well as piety, and yet it was not poetry after my particular taste. It was somehow at once solid and airy. Then I remembered that it was the atmosphere in some of Wordsworth's rural poems, which are full of genuine freshness and wonder, and yet are in some incurable way commonplace. This was curious, for Wordsworth's men were of the rocks and fells, and not of the fenlands or flats. Perhaps it is the clearness of still water and the mirrored skies of mirrors and pools that produces this crystalline virtue. Perhaps that is why Wordsworth is called a lake poet instead of a mountain poet. Perhaps it is the water that does it. Certainly the whole of that town was like a cup of water given at morning. After a few sentences exchanged at long intervals in the manner of rustic courtesy, I inquired casually what was the name of the town. The old lady answered that its name was Stilton, and composedly continued her needlework. But I had paused with my mug in the air, and was gazing at her with a suddenly arrested concern. I suppose, I said, that it has nothing to do with the cheese of that name. Oh, yes, she answered with a staggering indifference. They used to make it here. I put down my mug with a gravity far greater than her own. 
but this place is a shrine i said pilgrims should be pouring into it from wherever the english legend has endured alive there ought to be a colossal statue in the marketplace of the man who invented stilton cheese there ought to be another colossal statue of the first cow who provided the foundations of it there should be a burnished tablet laid into the ground on the spot where some courageous man first ate stilton cheese and survived on the top of a neighboring hill if there are any neighboring hills there should be a huge model of a stilton cheese made of some rich green marble and engraven with some haughty motto i suggest something like burn on semper veret said stiltonia temper verish the old lady said yes sir and continued her domestic occupations after a strained and emotional silence i said if i take a meal here tonight can you give me any stilton no sir i'm afraid we haven't got any stilton said the immovable one speaking as if it were something thousands of miles away this is awful i said for it seemed to me a strange allegory of england as she is now this little town that had lost its glory and forgotten so to speak the meaning of its own name and i thought it yet more symbolic because from all that old and full and virile life the great cheese was gone and only the beer remained and even that will be stolen by the liberals or adulterated by the conservatives politely disengaging myself i made my way as quickly as possible to the nearest large noisy and nasty town in that neighborhood where i sought out the nearest vulgar tawdry and avaricious restaurant there after trifling with beef mutton pudding pies and so on i got a stilton cheese i was so much moved by my memories that i wrote a sonnet to the cheese some critical friends have hinted to me that my sonnet is not strictly new that it contains echoes as they express it of some other poem that they have read somewhere here at least are the lines i wrote sonnet to a stilton cheese stilton thou shouldst be living at this hour and so thou art nor losest grace thereby england has need of thee and so have i she is a fen far as the eye can scour league after grassy league from lincoln tower to stilton in the fields she is a fen yet this high cheese by choice of fenland men like a tall green volcano rose in power plain living and long drinking are no more and pure religion reading household words and sturdy manhood sitting still all day shrink like this cheese that crumbles to its core while my digestion like the house of lords the heaviest burdens on herself doth lay i confess i feel myself as if some literary influence something that has haunted me were present in this otherwise original poem but it is hopeless to disentangle it now the thing the wind awoke last night with so noble a violence that it was like the war in heaven and i thought for a moment that the thing had broken free for wind never seems like empty air 
wind always sounds full and physical like the big body of something and i fancied that the thing itself was walking gigantic along the great roads between the forests of beech let me explain the vitality and recurrent victory of christendom have been due to the power of the thing to break out from time to time from its enveloping words and symbols without this power all civilizations tend to perish under a load of language and ritual one instance of this we hear much in modern discussion the separation of the form from the spirit of religion but we hear too little of numberless other cases of the same stiffening and falsification we're far too seldom reminded that just as church-going is not religion so reading and writing are not knowledge and voting is not self-government it would be easy to find people in the big cities who can read and write quickly enough to be clerks but who are actually ignorant of the daily movements of the sun and moon the case of self-government is even more curious especially as one watches it for the first time in a country district self-government arose among men probably among the primitive men certainly among the ancients out of an idea which seems now too simple to be understood the notion of self-government was not as many modern friends and foes of it seem to think the notion that the ordinary citizen is to be consulted as one consults an encyclopedia he is not there to be asked a lot of fancy questions to see how he answers them he and his fellows are to be within reasonable human limits masters of their own lives they shall decide whether they shall be men of the oar or the wheel of the spade or the spear the men of the valley shall settle whether the valley shall be devastated for coal or covered with corn and vines the men of the town shall decide whether it shall be hoary with thatches or splendid with spires of their own nature and instinct they shall gather under a patriarchal chief for debate in a political marketplace and in case the word man be misunderstood i may remark that in this moral atmosphere this original soul of self-government the women always have quite as much influence as the men but in modern england neither the men nor the women have any influence at all in this primary matter the moulding of the landscape the creation of a mode of life the people are utterly impotent they stand and stare at imperial and economic processes going on as they might stare at the lord mayor's show round about where i live for instance two changes are taking place which really affect the land and all things that live on it whether for good or for evil the first is that the urban civilization or whatever it is is advancing that the clerks come out in black swarms and the villas advance in red battalions the other is that the vast estates into which england has long been divided are passing out of the hands of the english gentry into the hands of men who are always upstarts and often actually foreigners now these are just the sort of things with which self-government was really supposed to grapple people were supposed to be able to indicate whether they wished to live in town or country to be represented by a gentleman or a cad i do not presume to prejudge their decision perhaps they would prefer the cad perhaps he is really preferable 
I say that the filling of a man's native sky with smoke, or the selling of his roof over his head, illustrate the sort of things he ought to have some say in, if he is supposed to be governing himself. But owing to the strange trend of recent society, these enormous earthquakes he has to pass over and treat as private trivialities. In theory, the building of a villa is as incidental as the buying of a hat. In reality, it is as if all Lancashire were laid waste for deer forests, or as if all Belgium were flooded by the sea. In theory, the sale of a squire's land to a moneylender is a minor and exceptional necessity. In reality, it is a thing like a German invasion. Sometimes it is a German invasion. Upon this helpless populace, gazing at these prodigies and fates, comes round about every five years a thing called a general election. It is believed by antiquarians to be the remains of some system of self-government, but it consists solely in asking the citizens questions about everything except what he understands. The examination paper of the election generally consists of some such queries as these. 1. Are the green biscuits eaten by the peasants of eastern Lithuania, in your opinion, fit for human food? 2. Are the religious professions of the President of the Orange Free State hypocritical or sincere? 3. Do you think that the savages in Prusso-Portuguese East Bunyip land are as happy and hygienic as the fortunate savages in Franco-British West Bunyip land? 4. Did the lost Latin charter, said to have been exacted from Henry III, reserve the right of the crown to create peers? 5. What do you think of what America thinks, of what Mr. Roosevelt thinks, of what Sir Eldon Gorse thinks, of the state of the Nile? 6. Detect some difference between the two persons in frock coats placed before you at this election. Now, it never was supposed in any natural theory of self-government that the ordinary man in my neighborhood need answer fantastic questions like these. He is a citizen of South Bucks, not an editor of notes and queries. He would be, I seriously believe, the best judge of whether farmsteads or factory chimneys should adorn his own skyline, of whether stupid squires or clever usurers should govern his own village. But these are precisely the things which the oligarchs will not allow him to touch with his finger. Instead, they allow him an imperial destiny and divine mission to alter. Under their guidance, all things that he knows nothing about. The name of self-government is noisy everywhere. The thing is throttled. The wind sang and split the sky like thunder all the night through. In scraps of sleep it filled my dreams with the divine discordances of martyrdom and revolt. I heard the horn of Roland and the drums of Napoleon, and all the tongues of terror with which the thing has gone forth, the spirit of our race alive. But when I came down in the morning, only a branch or two was broken off the tree in my garden, and none of the great country houses in the neighborhood were blown down, as would have happened if the thing had really been abroad. End of section one.